Hello, I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Wenzel Jones. And this is IMRU Radio Magazine, the voice of the LGBT community for 42 years. And if you are wondering, where is our jarringly happy theme song? It just doesn't feel right tonight. As you've no doubt heard, 50 people were killed and 53 injured early yesterday morning at a gay nightclub in Orlando. And we wanted to take a moment to share with you some of our thoughts on this very difficult week and time in our community's history. Like most of you, we at IMRU are struggling to make some sense of what happened at Pulse in Orlando this week. The truth is, of course, such violence and hatred can never make sense, and there's little one can do to ease the pain. But here we are again, watching our community be the target of hate, precious, beautiful queer lives taken at the moment they thought they were safe and among family. No, nothing quite like this has ever happened in the U.S. before, yet violence against us is nothing new. This is Pride Month. Let us remember why. Our modern LGBTQ movement was born this month, almost 50 years ago, because the most marginalized of an already marginalized community, street kids, trans men, and trans women, drag queens, queers of color, had had enough of the hatred. They had enough of division, being labeled perverts, being told they were a threat to everything good. Our queer forebears resisted because they knew they were right. They fought for their dignity. They fought for the idea of love. This was pride. During the height of the AIDS epidemic in this country, again, the rhetoric of division took our lives. AIDS was something we deserved, we were told. AIDS wasn't a priority because it affected those people. But we fought for our lives, our dignity, our right to love, even as we were dying. We would make the world see the power of that love. This was pride. And still, as drag queens get bashed, queer kids get kicked out of their homes, queers of faith, queers of color are alienated from their communities, as trans refugees are unable to return to their home countries, pride is a reminder of the power of love to transcend oppression. Pride may be a party sometimes, but that's only because we know what the stakes are. It's a celebration of the fact that we're still here, stronger, more diverse, determined to live fiercely, determined to love no matter what. We have lost so many lives to get here, and pride means those losses will never be in vain. Whether this weekend's act was motivated by ISIS by the side of two men kissing, or by some other insanity that we don't yet understand, it was not likely random. Whatever the declared rationale, our community was again the target of violence, as so many communities are, because of who we were perceived to be. From daily petty acts of bigotry to the attacks in Paris, Istanbul, or Orlando, there is almost always a core idea that there is an other an unworthy kind of human that has, that has been sown over time, this idea. This is the rhetoric of division. And it gave one man with a gun a rationale to walk into a local club during Pride Month and take 50 of our lives and to harm so many more. That rhetoric has power, no doubt, but it is also folly. This was a terrorist act. It was an attack on America. It was an attack against people of color. It was an attack against the LGBTQ community. And it was an attack against humanity. It was all of these things at once, impossible to neatly parse. May we come to a time when pride is a given 
and that we see that the division between us based on race, gender, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, or country of origin is only a way to keep us down. The alternative is one human family built on a foundation of dignity and love, and that is powerful. May we stop seeing those who are different as the other, but as one of our own. The folks who went to Pulse on Saturday night were our own, whether we knew them or not, and we will not forget them. We would like to dedicate tonight's show to all those whose lives were taken at Pulse in Orlando, to those who were injured, and to all of their loved ones. Our love goes out to you tonight. Thank you for that, Abby. President Obama addressed the nation from the White House on Sunday afternoon, and we'd like to first share just a small part of that speech. This is an especially heartbreaking day for all of our friends, our fellow Americans who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. The shooter targeted a nightclub where people came together to be with friends, to dance and to sing, and to live. The place where they were attacked is more than a nightclub. It is a place of solidarity and empowerment where people have come together to raise awareness, to speak their minds, and to advocate for their civil rights. So this is a sobering reminder that attacks on any American, regardless of race, ethnicity, religion, or sexual orientation, is an attack on all of us and on the fundamental values of equality and dignity that define us as a country. And no act of hate or terror will ever change who we are or the values that make us Americans. Today marks the most deadly shooting in American history. The shooter was apparently armed with a handgun and a powerful assault rifle. This massacre is therefore a further reminder of how easy it is for someone to get their hands on a weapon that lets them shoot people in a school or in a house of worship or a movie theater or in a nightclub. And we have to decide if that's the kind of country we want to be. And to actively do nothing is a decision as well. In the coming hours and days, we'll learn about the victims of this tragedy. Their names, their faces, who they were, the joy that they brought to families and to friends, and the difference that they made in this world. Say a prayer for them, and say a prayer for their families. That God give them the strength to bear the unbearable, and that he give us all the strength to be there for them, and the strength and courage to change. We need to demonstrate that we are defined more as a country by the way they live their lives than by the hate of the man who took them from us. As we go together, we will draw inspiration from heroic and selfless acts, friends who helped friends, took care of each other, and saved lives. In the face of hate and violence, we will love one another. We will not give in to fear or turn against each other. Instead, we will stand united as Americans to protect our people and defend our nation and to take action against those who threaten us. May God bless the Americans we lost this morning. May comfort their families. May God continue to watch over this country that we love. Thank you. 
Oh, he's good. Yeah, and I really <laughs> appreciate his words right now. It means so much to have the support from our president. Um, and as we learn more about the stories of the people that were there, um, we are going to try to bring them. But right now, you may know that there is a vigil starting in L.A. Last night, there was an impromptu vigil at Pride, and our own poet laureate, well, he also belongs to West Hollywood. He belongs West, to mankind. He belongs to mankind. <laughs> West Hollywood's poet laureate, Stephen Rains, was there last night, and he's also on the phone to talk to us. Stephen, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you for having me on. Hi. Hey, Steve. How did you find yourself at the vigil last night? Well, actually, um, early in the morning when I read the news, I was just... Um, I was tired of just sitting there and reading it, and I didn't know what to do with my grief. So I put a call out on Facebook asking if anyone wanted to create an impromptu vigil, and um, and Jackie Steele responded right away. And so we met up at the store, and we bought 50 candles to honor each victim. And just putting the candles into the car and counting each one, it became really impactful how large of a number 50 actually is. Mm. And so we we made signs and we uh, set up um, a place right at the start of the gay pride parade um, that was just kicking off and um, did, I'm glad that we were able to do something to honor the victims. And where was the start of the parade for those of us who weren't there? I'm sorry, can you say that oh, again? I'm sorry. Where was the start of the parade for those of us who weren't there? Oh, at Crescent Heights in Santa Monica. Ah. And we had posters um, stating that, you know, that we were with Pulse. And also, um, you know, the hashtag, a slogan that became a hashtag, which was Don't Stop Kissing. Mm-hmm. Because at the time in that early morning, all we knew was that uh, the father had stated that the shooter was offended by two men kissing. And so I came up with that slogan, which then became this trending hashtag, um, just you know, it's kind of like a call to action and in hopes that people aren't um, discouraged of coming out or living openly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and especially since I think something that's really struck us all about this is that Pulse was evidently such a place of safety and family. And for people who may not be out in the open, they could certainly be who they were at that club. And so that seems very symbolic to me. Did that resonate for the people that were there? Did that did that catch on? Oh, yes, definitely. People were placing flowers and the beads that they um, got from the parade they were setting down there. People were having moments of silence and praying. The L.A. mayor, Eric Garcetti, came by and spoke and said a few words. Um, yeah, it, it really resonated with the crowd. I mean, Pride is, you know, one of my favorite days of the year. And to wake up with that news was so heartbreaking, like it was for everyone that attended Pride. Well, now, is is the is the arrangement still there, or when it's impromptu? I mean, you don't have permission for it, or, or did you just take it down after a certain amount of time? Correct. There was no permission at all, and yet everyone was so accommodating. And the police that were there, um, they even helped us set up, as well as uh, Christopher Street West, the volunteers there. They helped us section off an area for it. So it really had a tremendous amount of support from people, and that was nice to see. Stephen, did you follow some of the controversy before these events about Pride this year? Yes, Yeah. Did. did you feel like, did this put anything into perspective or change that for you? Well, 
I think that everyone softens at news like this, right? And we start to realize everyone's humanness and our vulnerabilities. And it just kind of encouraged me, who I consider myself a very courteous and considerate person in the world, to be even more considerate and courteous. Um, everyone, everyone in your life could be lost. Um, it's just that quickly. And these were, you know, this is a Latin night, people on the dance floor enjoying themselves um, and how quickly things can change. And do you feel like that lasted, that feeling of sort of softening lasted through the day? Yeah, of course. It was it was a topic on everyone's mind. At the same time, we don't want to, um, you know, it's a rebellious act to uh, express joy and yeah. to not give in to that kind of intimidation. You know, there's a message that's being sent. And I know there's a lot of, um, there are now reports that the shooter might have frequented the club and and that, I, you know, we'll know in the future the validity of those claims, but I think it's important to think about, you know, it says something about how internalized homophobia can be just as damaging as homophobia is to our community. Now, Stephen, from the response that you're getting from people on the street, do you think this might be the event that finally makes a change, or do you think it's going to be a lot of you know, lip service and grief and tears, and then it just gets swept under the rug, like so many other horrible things with guns. Being that this is the largest of its kind in the country, I imagine this is going to be impactful, and hopefully it does spark change. I need to ask you one last question, and I'm wondering how this is speaking to your poet soul, if you can even put that into words yet. That, you know, of course, I run to poetry when I'm feeling a flood of emotions, and I think a lot of people do. It's kind of where we find solace is in words, and, um, you know, and, and so that's, I'm no different than that. Um, and, and it's almost, you know, I mean, there's no poem that can really console during these moments yeah. to fully console. Yeah. Well, are you at the vigil right now? I'm headed there right now. All right. Okay. Well, we've got our own Chris Ann Eastwood there. So um, we're going to say goodbye to you for now and and check in with her and um, be safe tonight. Um, Take care of yourself and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for devoting so much time in your program to this issue. Thank you. Thank you. And as Abby said, we have our intrepid field reporter at City Hall tonight at the vigil. We just began. Are you there, Chris Ann? Chris Ann. She's hello. Hello. Oh, hey there. So I, I, you know what? I dropped my phone, <laughs> uh, which I'm talking to, and I'm holding a tape recorder to do the speaker. So you're busy. You're already getting getting busy. Um, yes. It is an incredible outpouring. At least a thousand people, probably more. Uh, Lori Jean from the Los Angeles LGBT Center is currently speaking. It was prefaced by the Gaiman Chorus, which is here, and they sang True Colors. Mm. There are rainbow flags. There are signs, but not a lot. Um, you know, we are Orlando, Basta, Ya, We Will Not Be Deterred. There are groups here against Islamophobia. There are groups here, Asian API equality. A lot of signs about peace. Gun control and peace seems to be the prevailing theme. There's no blame 
uh, on any of these signs. It's all about just stopping the violence from wherever it came from. Well, now, Chrisanne, did you have a lot of time before the event started to talk to people? And if so, what sort of things were you hearing from them? I did not, actually. I got here and then tried to find a spot. I'm hopefully going to talk with them during and after. Everybody is a very quiet, respectful crowd. Everyone is a lot of reflection. It's uh, unlike any gay event that we are all used to. There's no whistles. No one is, you know, jumping up and down and back loud music and... No glitter, no feathers. Everybody's clothed. Everybody is very, very somber and and sad, but looking for hope in this group. So, Are there any signs of what we as a community can be doing now? Um, can you repeat that question? I'm just wondering if there are any signs about what we as a community can be doing now to to keep something like this from ever happening. Are people talking about that, or or is it st- are we still just in shock? Nobody seemed wanting to talk before the event. Everybody was just quietly kind of finding their place, finding themselves in front of the dais. Um, like I said, very somber, meditative crowd here, just more of just wanting to be the group of peace lovers as the community is. And Chris, and how's it skewing demographically? I mean, is it a young crowd, an old crowd? Or? It's all over the spectrum. I see a lot of newbies, a lot of young ones. I see a lot of folks your age, so a lot of old folks, Wendell. Um, <laughs> no, but just kidding. Um, <laughs> I'll but, own it. You know, really, all over the spectrum, all over the racial lines, all over the gender lines. It is truly an incredible rainbow of us, the rainbow people, and hugely peaceful. I don't get a, I don't get an angry vibe. I just get a sad, but quietly defiant vibe. Hmm. That's what we do well, I think, sometimes. We can be angry, but we can also be beautifully defiant or as Bayard Rustin said, we can be angelic troublemakers. <laughs> yeah, and, that, and that's a question that, you know, we have to ask ourselves as a community. We've always prided ourselves as being passive resistance and never being violent, but being obstructive. You know, the uh, ACT UP uh, actions for um, better um, AIDS medication is one example. But we have never resorted to true violence. And my fear is that after something like this, and the current temper of the presidential election and the vibe we're picking up from the country that we we don't turn that way. I don't see that tonight, but that's something I think we all need to be mindful of. And, and who else is uh, on the lineup to speak tonight? Do they give you a list? They did not. Uh, Lori Jean was speaking. I can't see who's speaking now because I'm only five foot five. <laughs> and everybody's taller than me. Uh, but a gentleman is speaking right now. So if folks want to run down there, uh, where should they go? Uh, City Hall, the city of Los Angeles, is right at 200 North Spring. I'm at the corner of Spring and First Street. We are in the entrance on the First Street entrance. There are parking garages around, uh, like within a block. So hop on transit or just hop on down, and there's plenty of room for every, everyone. As I said, there's at least a 1,000 people, probably more, maybe up to two by now. Wow. And, uh, but it's a good place to be with our, 
our brothers, our sisters, wherever we are in the gender spectrum, wherever we are in the sexuality spectrum, to come and be with the folks who, who even though we may not have been in Orlando on Saturday night, they're us. Yeah. They're us. And I'm really hopeful that this stays about love. We can be defiant, we can be strong, we can resist, but we're always about love. Um, Chris Ann, we're going to let you go and um, let us know what happens and um, take care of yourself, okay? I will do. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thanks for so much. In. There was something that I saw right after this happened that I was very moved by, and it was a press conference from the Council on American-Islamic Relations, and we have a little portion of that we'd like to share with you. The liberation of the American Muslim community is profoundly linked to the liberation of other minority groups, blacks, Latinos, gay, Jewish, trans, and every other community that has faced discrimination and oppression in this country. We cannot fight injustice against some group and not against others. Homophobia, transphobia, and Islamophobia are interconnected systems of oppression, and we cannot dismantle one without dismantling the others. Homophobia and other forms of phobia take lives in this country every day and we must stand up for the victims and for their families. The criminals, the terrorists, and extremists behind this kind of attacks mean only to divide us and turn us against one another. We cannot afford to let them succeed. As Muslims, as Americans, now is the time to speak out and make it clear that we will not give in to hate and we will not give in to fear. We heard in the news that the alleged perpetrator called in and he pledged allegiance to Daesh, or as we call it, ISIS. I have a word for ISIS and their supporters. How would you stand before God and answer to your crimes against innocent people, thousands of innocent people, Muslims, Christians, and other minorities? You do not speak for us. You do not represent us. You are an aberration. You are an outlaw, or as we call it in Islam, they are khawarij, they are outlaws. They don't speak for our faith. They never belong to this beautiful faith. They claim to, but the 1.7 billion people are united in rejecting their extremism, their interpretation, and their acts and, and senseless violence. And to those politicians who may try to exploit this tragedy, we ask them to respect the victims and their families. This is not the time to score points. This is not the time to exploit fear. This is the time for unity and faith. Thank you. Still to come, the national and international news from this way out. And the firsthand story about that 1975 same-sex marriage that was finally recognized by our government last week after a 41-year wait. We'll be right back. Jane Adams, social work pioneer and peace activist, coming up now on The Rainbow Minute. 
Jane Adams was born in Illinois in 1860. Although from an upper-class family, she became known for her compassionate service to the poor. In the 1880s, she opened the Hull House in poverty-stricken Chicago, where Adams pioneered the concept of the independent woman, incorporating leadership training. Adams believed the dominant male values of her time contributed to poverty, urban blight, and war, and believed the duty of women was to propose different models for living. Her belief that war was the supreme social evil garnered her the Nobel Peace Prize in 1931. Adams' closest companion was Mary Rosette Smith, who championed the work at the Hull House. Adams considered this 40-year relationship nothing short of a marriage. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Mary Gay Hutcherson. Hello, I'm Dennis Shepard, Matthew Shepard's father, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine on KPFK-FM, 90.7 Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 99.5 Ridgecrest, China Lake, 93.7 San Diego, or streaming online at kpfk.org. Welcome back. You are listening to IMRU Radio. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Wenzel Jones. That wonderful music coming out of break was the Gay Men's Chorus of Washington, D.C. singing We Shall Overcome at the Orlando shooting vigil in front of the White House yesterday afternoon. Although it's hard to think about news outside of Orlando right now, on Saturday afternoon we did record our regular weekly newscast. And it's important to remind ourselves that all of this is connected. I'm Michelle Marie Gilkison. And I'm Carol Myers. With News Wrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending June 11, 2016. Russia led an effort at the United Nations this week to strip language that included the decriminalization of homosexuality and drug use from a resolution at a major gathering that called for ending the HIV-AIDS pandemic by 2030. Iran, Poland, and several Gulf states joined in to block the decriminalization language in the resolution adopted by the UN General Assembly on June 8. Russian health official Dilyara Rabilova Borovic argued that governments have a sovereign right to decide their own public health strategy. The Vatican also voiced its opposition to the more explicit language in the resolution that identified sex workers and gay men as at-risk groups. What's being called a high-level meeting on ending AIDS has drawn medical experts and government officials from across the world to UN headquarters in New York. It's already been marked by controversy when the 51-member nation Organization of Islamic Cooperation succeeded in blocking a number of LGBT activist groups, most from Africa or the Middle East, from attending. 
Russia also offered a resolution that could have allowed it and other countries with anti-LGBT laws to deny antiviral treatment to gay men. That proposal failed. However, according to a June 9th report by BuzzFeed's J. Lester Fetter, a group of five South American countries will soon propose a new position at the UN to investigate human rights violations against LGBTI people. Such a special rapporteur would answer to the United Nations Human Rights Council, which begins its new session in Geneva next week. Another leading LGBT activist has been brutally murdered. This time, it was 39-year-old Rene Martinez of Honduras. He was reportedly forced into a vehicle as he was arriving home from work on June 1st. The Associated Press reported that his body was found two days later and that the cause of death was strangulation. Martinez led the San Pedro Sula-based rights group Comunidad Gay Sambradana, and like the Bangladeshi activist who was also viciously murdered last month, he worked with the U.S. Agency for International Development. A statement issued by the U.S. Embassy on behalf of the people and government of the United States condemned in the strongest terms the apparent murder of Rene Martinez, calling him a leader in the LGBTI community in San Pedro Sula and a rising political figure in Honduras. In fact, La Prensa reported that Martinez was already a well-known member of the country's governing national party. At last report, investigators had yet to identify potential suspects. Anti-LGBT violence and discrimination are commonplace in the Central American country. But Singapore's 8th Pink Dot Festival was so successful this year that the government has decided to crack down on the LGBT event's foreign corporate sponsors. The Ministry of Home Affairs said in a June 8th statement that foreign entities should not fund, support, or influence events held at Speaker's Corner, the part of Hong Lim Park that hosts Pink Dot. It's the only free speech area in the city-state where peaceful gatherings are allowed without a permit. This year's Pink Dot on June 8th had 18 corporate sponsors, twice last year's total. The majority were foreign conglomerates and included Facebook, Google, Apple, Barclays, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, General Electric, BP, Bloomberg, and Twitter. Attendees were treated to a Pink Dot concert this year, featuring homegrown talents like pop soul artist Gareth Fernandez and acapella group Mi Capella. TV host and writer Anita Kapoor, local comedian Leo Ling Ling, and hip-hop artist Shiga Shea also rallied the crowd. The event culminated with the tens of thousands of people who overflowed the park raising their pink placards simultaneously to underscore the theme of the event, Freedom to Love. This year's crowd exceeded the estimated 28,000 people who were at the 2015 edition. As for the threatened government crackdown, Pink Dot organizers said that the event's corporate sponsors are all registered and incorporated in Singapore. We are fortunate to count among them, their statement read, admired household names, employers of choice for a sizable portion of our workforce, inextricably linked with and fully a part of this beautiful fabric we call home. If the government presses its case, the annual Pink Dot Festival could be even more newsworthy next year. In other news, the Irish Presbyterian Church, the largest Protestant denomination in both the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, has ordered its ministers to read a statement opposing marriage equality at every heterosexual wedding ceremony from now on. While activists continue to battle the government of Northern Ireland for marriage rights, gay and lesbian weddings began in the Republic of Ireland late last year after a public vote overwhelmingly approved them. The statement that's now required reading at all Irish Presbyterian Church weddings, which can only be heterosexual, says that 
Since the beginning of creation, God, in his gracious purpose, provided marriage as the accepted way in which a man and a woman may come together as husband and wife. This is the only basis on which marriage can take place within the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. Since the Church operates across both the Republic and Northern Ireland, the statement is now mandatory in Northern Ireland, too, even though civil marriage is not yet legal there for lesbian and gay couples. There is no record of any religious institution that opposes same-gender unions ever being forced to officiate them in countries that have civil marriage equality, so it's not clear what the Church hopes to accomplish. Nevertheless, the clerk of its General Assembly, Rev. Trevor Gribben, told reporters that the new wedding vow would help protect freedom of religious practice. The daughter of South Africa's iconic civil rights activist and Nobel Peace Prize winner Desmond Tutu, also a longtime vocal advocate for LGBT rights, has been virtually kicked out of the country's Anglican church for marrying a woman. Umpo Tutu Van Firth married her longtime girlfriend, Marceline Van Firth, in a December ceremony in the Netherlands. Like her father, who reportedly gave his blessing, Mpo is an Anglican cleric. She told local media that the Bishop of Cape Town, who'd originally allowed her to officiate in his diocese, was told to revoke her license after officials found out about the wedding. Mpo said she decided to return her license in late May rather than wait for it to be taken. South Africa enacted marriage equality in 2006, but the Anglican Church continues to be sharply divided by the issue. The Episcopal Church, the U.S. branch of the worldwide Global Anglican Communion, supports marriage equality, for which it has been punished because most Anglican churches in Latin America, Asia, and Africa, known as the Global South, are staunchly opposed. Tutu Van Firth remains a priest in good standing in the U.S., where she was ordained. New Zealand Anglicans voted against blessing same-gender couples in mid-May. Ratcheting up the debate on transgender bathroom use in the U.S., Virginia's Gloucester County School Board, as expected, announced on June 7th that it would appeal to the Supreme Court the late-made decision of the Fourth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals that overturned its policy requiring transgender students to use separate unisex bathrooms and locker rooms rather than the boys or girls' facilities that match their gender identity. The case of 16-year-old transgender student Gavin Grimm has already reached landmark status. If the High Court agrees to hear the school board's appeal, which likely won't be until sometime in 2017, it would be the first time that the justices had decided to consider a case involving transgender rights. If the Supreme Court refuses to hear the case, or if they do and the current eight justices split four to four, the Fourth Circuit ruling will be considered definitive not only for Virginia, but for all the other states in the circuit, West Virginia, Maryland, South Carolina, and North Carolina. At least five federal lawsuits are pending against North Carolina's infamous HB2, which requires trans students to use the sex-segregated public facilities that match what's on their birth certificate rather than their gender identity. And finally, North Carolina Republican Representative Dan Bishop of Mecklenburg, who wrote HB2, continues to reject any effort to repeal it. It's important to note that while the focus has been on bathrooms, the law also bans local governments from protecting their LGBT citizens from discrimination. I don't fear man, I fear God, he wrote to a constituent, so I won't be backing down. Responding to a supporter who compared opponents of HB2 to the Taliban, Bishop wrote, I love that idea, and that the LGBT movement jeopardizes freedom. However, he'll apparently need to count country music star Dolly Parton among the Taliban. The credits of the longtime LGBT rights ally include 
writing and performing the Oscar-nominated song Travelin' Through for the 2005 Felicity Huffman starring Transamerica. Parton dispatched the so-called bathrooms issue in just 16 seconds during an interview this week on CNN Money. I think everybody should be treated with respect. I don't judge people. I try not to get too caught up in all the controversy of things. I hope that everybody gets a chance to be who and what they are. I just know if I have to pee, I'm going to pee. I don't care where it's going to be. That's News Wrap for the week ending June 11, 2016. Produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Michelle Marie Gilkison. And I'm Carol Myers. Remember, you can hear all 30 commercial-free minutes of This Way Out on the podcast at thiswayout.org and on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Wenzel, we got to remember to have more Dolly Parton on this show. I know. I, I adore that woman. I know. She makes everything feel just a little bit better. And she tells it like it is. Oh, my. She does. Um, I think it might be time for a love story. Ooh. And a little reminder of what it's all about and how far we've come. This is a story you might have heard before by our own Steve Pride. And stick around to the end because we have a little update on it that might answer that mysterious (laughs) question. When was the first same-sex marriage in the U.S.? You might think you know. In the mid-1970s, Richard Adams and his husband, Tony Sullivan, filed the first federal lawsuit seeking equal treatment for a same-sex marriage in U.S. history. Yes, I did say husband, and I did say the 70s. I'm Cleela Rorix, former county clerk from Boulder County, Boulder, Colorado. And I'm Anthony Sullivan, the surviving spouse of Richard Adams. I'm Tom Miller. I'm the producer and director of Limited Partnership, a 40-year love story of Richard Adams and Tony Sullivan, who met in the early 70s and got legally married in Boulder, Colorado in 1975. But one of the interesting things is that Tony was from Australia, and so they used that marriage license to have Tony apply for a green card. This 40-year saga began in the Boulder County Clerk's Office. In March of 75, I had two guys come to my office asking for a marriage license. They were both from Colorado Springs. And I did not give them an immediate answer. I spoke to our district attorney and got a legal opinion on whether our Colorado marriage code would prohibit giving them a license. At the time, it did not. It was not addressed as an issue in the Colorado marriage code that a marriage had to be between a man and a woman. So he left it up to me to make the decision, and I decided that I was going to give them a marriage license. And I subsequently went on to issue five more licenses, one of them being for Tony and Richard. At the time, when I issued those licenses, I did it just simply because I felt like it was the right thing to do. I did not know anyone in the gay community. I had never really knowingly met anyone who was gay or lesbian. I was kind of a budding feminist, and we were fighting for our own rights. Our paths at that time didn't cross yet with the gay rights movement. The women's movement did not. So it ended up being a very 
lonely decision for many, many years. I was never contacted by anyone in the gay community, really. After I issued the license, all hell broke loose in many areas of the country. I received a lot of hate mail, mail from entire church congregations telling me I was creating a Sodom and Gomorrah. The local paper editorialized against me, telling me I was going to lower the property value of Boulder since all these gay people are going to flock to town to live. Those six marriage licenses were never addressed legally. Later, Colorado went on to revise the marriage code, but they didn't negate those licenses. And then even later, Colorado went on to have a constitutional ban. And just as Tony and Richard did, I feel that that marriage license that they have is a valid marriage license and that they should have been awarded the rights that they have been seeking for all of these years. Tony, how did you and Richard end up in Cleela's office? We had realized that we wanted to be together. And the immigration law at the time was that gay people weren't even allowed into the country as tourists, that if you'd been naturalized, you could be stripped of your citizenship and deported, and you couldn't apply for a green card. And um, the injustice of this, before we really realized how it affected us, outraged us. And I remember we had a conversation where we said, someone's got to change this, it's terrible. And then, of course, when you say things like that, you're inevitably hit with the thing, wait a sec, we qualify for that, but we, you know, sort of same token said, wait a sec, let's back off. And we made a decision to wait six months before we decide that we would uh, take a stand. And in that six months, of course, the realization that we did not want to be separated, which was the main thing, sunk in deeper and deeper. And at the end of six months, we said, well, what should we do about this? So we decided that we would take a stand. And we went to Troy Perry, who had the Metropolitan Community Church, who was performing what was known as Holy Unions. He's been left out of the history a bit, and it's wrong, because before Stonewall, he was talking about gay relationships. People need to remember that back in that time, our movement was fighting just for the right to not be thrown into jail for being gay. Relationships wasn't even on the agenda. So we went to Troy and approached him and said that we wanted to get a holy union and go to the courts on the grounds of freedom of religion like the Native Americans did with peyote. And so we had the holy union, we were uh, planning what to do, and then suddenly we read in The Advocate, the gay publication, about the marriages in Boulder, Colorado. And Richard and I, you know, immediately, oh, this looks right. We waited like a month because it was over a period of time that this was going on and Johnny Carson was joking on it on television at night and things. And we thought, well, if Colorado has allowed this to go on this length of time when it's receiving high publicity, this must be for real because with law, you've got to have a reasonable expectation that the law is, you know, that it's not just a gimmick. So in good faith, we flew to Boulder, Colorado, went to Keeler's office, got issued a marriage license. We were so nervous about the law possibly changing. We took our own ministers with us to getting the license and got the actually married in the courthouse corridor outside <laughs> Cleela's office and took the license straight back in so that there'd be no chance of it not being received. After the marriage, you applied for citizenship as Richard's spouse. How did the U.S. government respond? The letter was delivered on a Saturday morning. And the post person, when I opened it, was still there. We had to sign for it. 
and I read it, and uh, I thought, no, this can't be real. And so I showed it to the post person and said, does this say what I think it says? He looked at it and just gave a silent nod. So I gave it to Richard. And I suppose as a little unkind when he'd read it, I turned around and said, it's your government. The letter said that the petition for me to stay here as the spouse of a U.S. citizen had been turned down because, quote, you have failed to establish that a bona fide marital relationship can exist between two faggots, close quote. Richard and Tony's battle to stay together led them to flee the U.S., and as Richard was not allowed immigration to Tony's homeland due to an antiquated law in Australia, the couple found themselves without a country, floating around Europe, eventually sneaking back home across the U.S. border with Mexico. Their complex and moving story is beautifully recounted in the documentary Limited Partnership. But before you can say that was then and this is now... According to documentarian Tom Miller, there are some states that have gay marriage, and there are many cases in district courts now in all parts of the country where the question of marriage equality is going on, but it ultimately has to end up in the Supreme Court again. And I just feel it's really important for people to understand, from a personal point of view, how it affects gay and lesbian couples, and that this is not over until all states have equal marriage rights. Find more information about the film online at limitedpartnershipmovie.com. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. So a few updates on that. First of all, we do have same-sex marriage all over the country now, and that's a wonderful change. Second, you can now stream the documentary Limited Partnership on Netflix. And third, there was an update to this story that broke just last Tuesday. Tony had planned to be here tonight to discuss it, but was unable to do so. But that gives us the opportunity to talk to the reporter who broke the news story last week, our good friend and the editor of the Pride LA, Southern California's best LGBT news source, Troy Masters. Hi, Troy. Hello. How are you guys? Fine. Thank you. And you? I'm well. I'm uh, trying to keep up with all of this new stuff today. Absolutely. And even as sad as that is, you broke some very good news about Richard and Tony's story last week, very briefly. Um, What was it? That was such a... I can't tell you how long it took me to write that story. (laughs) Even (laughs) though their story has been told a million times, I was going back and forth with uh, the White House about like how to keep it a secret before they allowed me to publish the story and uh, I finally like negotiated it just in the, at press time just as my deadline approached I was afraid they weren't going to honor it but they did and uh, they let me publish it it was just incredible it was just the most incredibly wonderful story to be able to report and it's probably the best one I ever wrote and the punchline is what did you reveal for those who did not get to read that story well, <laughs> Anthony Sullivan, after fighting for 41 years to have uh, what he believed all along was a valid license that was issued to him by the, the county clerk in Boulder, Colorado, his marriage certificate was honored by the federal government, making him the f- first person in the history of mankind to have a gay marriage that is that at 
the oldest existent gay marriage in the world. So 1975 was the first gay marriage that is now honored by the federal government and still one of the world. Now, is this more a symbolic thing, or are there any actual legal ramifications since the husband has passed on? Well, there are legal ramifications because he is now a surviving widow. So he is entitled to benefits, including Social Security. Uh, his citizenship, of course, is a benefit of their, their marriage. So um, he's now a, a permanent resident. He can apply, and I think it's five years to become a citizen, and that's pretty automatic. Um, but he is entitled to all the privileges and benefits of any surviving spouse. Have you talked to him since this happened? Oh, yeah, many times. And how is um, he doing? He's enthusiastic. You know, initially, I think he was like very high about it. Um, he didn't talk about it. The note came in March, and we're just now sort of like getting it out there in the public sphere. So I think it was a great relief, which then led sort of to a depression, which normally happens when anytime, you know, uh, suddenly a number of things could be quite depressing, you know, to know that you've fought so hard to get something that you are now going to enjoy post-relationship because yeah. of uh, Richard's death. So, I mean, the entire time they were married, there was a different sense of being together. Their togetherness, has, it changes in retrospect, you know, in some ways. So that leads to depression and also just having the thing that you fight for uh, being resolved and being sort of like an empty nester of issues. You know, I think that also leads to a little bit of it. But we, we worked hard to make sure he's uh, been honored and that he's received uh, some, um, you know, aside from the article, he's gotten a lot of attention. The West Hollywood City Council last week honored him at the opening of the Pride uh, celebration. So the mayor's um, party, the first party that they throw for Pride, was about honoring Anthony which was really wonderful. They gave him a proclamation. He was there to receive it with uh, the first relative who's ever visited him since his 41 years. As many people might know, he was alienated from his family, and they believed him to be dead until his niece started reading the stories. Hmm. And she came from Australia to visit him. So she was with him for the, the Pride celebration. Do you, do you know if he has any plans of doing anything untoward with that letter from the government denying him his marriage? Like maybe a ceremonial burning of it, or yeah, it doesn't sound oh, very untoward to me. I think it's like a it's a piece of history. I hope he doesn't burn. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Do you think? I hope it, oh, sorry. Go ahead. It, it should be given to the one archives that, or or some archives at least. I and mean, that's like a that's a now it's a treasure. And like if you had that um, framed side by side with the letter of apology later from USIS, U.S. Citizenship. An immigration, uh, I mean, that would just, that's just an amazing document. It's such a reminder, especially this week, when it's so easy to feel so defeated. Things do happen. Our continued efforts do pay off. It is a tragedy that Richard wasn't here to see this. But I am wondering if there's a chance that there is any sort of uh, precedent that this might uh, set for other couples who were facing that back then and surviving spouses? You know, certainly if 
anyone had died during California's uh, hiatus on gay marriages, being uh, there, there were people who were married and, and then they were sort of pulled back, you know, if any of those spouses happened to have died, they possibly could go back because of Anthony's case and claim benefits, the surviving spouse. There were six couples that were married in 1975 when Clela uh, Rorex was issuing marriage licenses in Boulder until the attorney general of the state told her to stop, but they didn't invalidate the marriages. Um, there were six couples who were married, but none of them survived as couples. So Anthony's is the one, only one that goes back that far. I'm not aware of any that were issued in the interim. But if there were, they certainly have a case now. And we'll find out about it in the Pride, I have a feeling. Thank you so much, Troy Mouse, just for talking thank to you. us about that. That is, it is a great coda to this story. Yes, thank you so much. I'm glad you put me back in a good mood. I can, <laughs> well, thank you. I can, uh, I can turn the TV off now. Great. I recommend it. <laughs> well, now you might thank not you. want to turn it all the way off because Out of Iraq, the documentary on Logo, is tonight at 9 o'clock, and we will be doing a story on that on next week's we, IMRU. We will actually be interviewing the men in that story. It is beautiful. Another one of those things that reminds us what it's all for. Well, that's it for tonight. Our thanks to IMRU's coordinating producer, Steve Pride, tonight's director, Michelle Marie Gilkison, our board op, Liz Tapia, and our Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, where the link to the latest show is posted every Tuesday afternoon. Many of the regular patrons of Orlando's Pulse Nightclub have described it as not just another bar. They say it was a home and a shelter. So that's how we'll close the show. Good night. Good night. Oh, a storm is threatening